Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, good day, and welcome to the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus, and I am your host, and for today's episode, Nightwood by Juna Barnes. But before I jump into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, something to highlight from the week past, and this week, something I have been trying to photograph for years now. I do a lot of photography on for my own personal enjoyment and actually also for work as well, which is sort of a wonderful added bonus. But in my head, I have visions of a lot of photos I would like to take. And on the weekend, I was traveling around and got a shot that I had envisioned for such a long time. And this is my little diary snippet about the photo. And it reads, At last, a photo I have envisioned for years. Influenced by Van Gogh, no doubt, but how can one escape such a mixing of colours? The yellow of the wheat fields are stark, are vibrant, are layered. The sky is dark, deep grey crease lines in the folds of clouds, and together they create such a contrast. Wheat by proxy looks dry and holds visions of heat in the sentimentalism of its existence. It speaks of summer and bows to the hot winds blowing over parched lands. When the world is so hot the sky turns pale from the blaring blister above and dust sticks to the back of the throat. Put the same parched grass against that of an oncoming storm and you have a view into two worlds in one shot. And at last, I got it. And I titled this one, Wheatfield in a Storm. So, I mean, that kind of, you know, that is the picture there. It was a lovely yellow wheatfield and behind it was these very dark, brooding grey clouds charging towards me. And I got the shot... Very happy, cracking. Housekeeping, as always, all the scripts from the episode are available on my website, just in case you know of anyone who has a hearing impairment who might get a kick out of a written version of the pod. So head along, they are all free for use for all to enjoy. Okay, here we are at the start of another episode. Nightwood, Juna Barnes. Now, I am uncertain if I actually read this book. It was a foggy narrative and it's foggy in my brain that I think I could be convinced that the whole thing was a fever dream I actually had. Juna Barnes's novel Nightwood was published in 1936 and it was a groundbreaking work that defied conventional narrative structures and delved into the complexities of human identity and desire. This modernist masterpiece challenged societal norms and explores the fragmented nature of the self, presenting a vivid and haunting portrait of individuals struggling to find meaning in a chaotic and uncertain world. And that is curious, because for me, it was an uncertain world and I found the whole damn book incredibly uncertain. I don't know why I keep picking up modernist books recently, because it's, I mean, it's really not my favorite literary style, so I don't know, I don't know. Uh, Like, I'm the one picking them. I have no excuses. I do want to make a concession of sorts. I read this book on a Kindle, which, to be quite fair, I've actually really grown to love my Kindle. 
of course, I can hear you, yes, nothing compares to a physical book, and it never will. And so I think a few of my frustrations from this book came from the inability to flip between pages. As I was reading, I felt I needed a pen in hand so that I could underline, scribble, and cross out words. The introduction to the book was written by Jeanette Winterson, and they said that this is one of those books that is like drinking wine with a pearl dissolving in the glass. You have taken in more than you know, and it will go on doing its work. From now on, a part of you is pearl-lined. She also says that you can slide into it, it being the book, or slide over it. And from the offset, I think it's only fair to be very clear that I admit, I think I perhaps slid over this book. I'm not even going to try with an overview today because the plot is so loose, it's almost nonsensical. Now, I have read books before that are basically plotless. The Notebooks of Multi-Lurid Brig by Raina Maria Rilke is one that really comes to mind when discussing a novel that you know, is basically plotless. But I think what sets this particular story, Nightwood, apart is the fact that there is really no main character. We enter this story with the birth of Baron Felix and follow him until he tries to produce an heir. Then, despite your confusion, the novel moves on and we learn about Robin Vogt and we completely leave Baron Felix on the previous page and Felix gives up his main character title to Robin Vogt. But then we move on from her to Dr. Matthew and then it moves to Nora and by the end you're not sure what a character even is and I think that's one of the reasons this book was so dislocating because it's barely even a novel and more a collection of stories loosely bound by a thread. But then, let's go one step further. The vast majority of this novel is just Dr. Matthew's ramblings in monologues about essentially nothing, and yet it feels like there is something there. Now this is a lovely little quote from him, as the first kind of teaser to a passage you might find yourself contemplating in this novel. Apologies because it is quite long, but it's a nice one, and I think it's the kind of length that displays the lovely rambling nature to this novel. And it goes, To our friends, he answered, we die every day, but to ourselves we die only at the end. We do not know death or how often it has essayed our most vital spirit. While we are in the parlour, it is visiting the pantry. Montaigne says, To kill a man there is required a bright, shining and clear light. But that was spoken of the conscience towards another man. But what of our own death? Permit us to approach the night wherein we die manifold alone. Don says, We are all conceived in close prison. In our mother's wombs we are close prisoners all. When we are born, we are but born to the liberty of the house. All our life is but a going out to the place of execution and death. Now was there ever any man seen to sleep in the cart between Newgate and Tyburn? Between the prison and the place of execution does any man sleep? Yet, he says, men sleep all the way. How much more, therefore, is there upon him a close sleep where he is mounted on darkness? It's a lovely passage, but it is incredibly dense and it's a confusing one. It's, it's intricate and deep and it's disorientating, which doesn't help because the book is completely disorientating. It's a book that can give you doubts as a reader in the sense that you think you're a good, capable reader, and then you read something like that and find yourself lost, unsure of what's happened, unsure of what's happening, 
and feeling really, really lost, wondering who's talking. Though, despite this, there is a kind of lucid awareness of it all. I feel like I've been bashing the novel uh, quite a bit, and, you know, I believe rightly so, but there is this untold hypnotism that keeps you ticking over in a way that isn't exactly forced. But you're not racing either. You're kind of just passing through this novel in a trance, or gliding like a shark above the ocean bed. I think part of this gliding and perhaps lack of enjoyment stems from what vague threads of story there are, and how they relate to the larger context of history. This novel is one of the first in history of Western literature to have a lesbian relationship, and on top of that, Dr. Matthews is a transsexual. And there is this wonderful liberality to the entire thing, because it's taking place in Bohemian Paris, and of course those pesky Nazis haven't come yet, and crushed this age of indulgence and decadence. But of course, reading it with the knowledge and foresight of history in our back pocket, we know that the struggle is coming. I wish I had more to say about this book. I really do, because it seems to be quite loved. Some versions of the book will have an introduction from by T.S. Eliot, who wrote that the novel was so good a novel that only sensibilities trained on poetry can wholly appreciate it. Which I think is a very flamboyant thing to say, and I'm sure it has caused a wealth of people to agree with him, but perhaps it's all a bit of the Emperor's new clothes situation. Shall we have another quote before I rate it? I think so. And the quote goes, She was nervous about the future. It made her indelicate. She was one of the most unimportantly wicked women of her time, because she could not let her time alone, and yet could never be a part of it. She wanted to be the reason for everything, and so was the cause of nothing. She had the fluency of tongue and the action meted out by the divine providence to those who cannot think for themselves. She was the master of the oversweet phrase, the overtight embrace. Okay, so what would I rate this novel then? I'm going to say a 2.5 out of 5. I completely agree that this novel might be better on the second read, but that's a shame because this was only my first. So, what am I reading this week? This week, I have started reading a bit of David Sedaris. Now, if you've never heard of him, he is an essayist, and I would recommend him to anyone and everyone, because, I mean, just go read some of his stuff and you'll, you'll know what I mean. He has quite a few books of essays out, and they are whimsical and fun and refreshing. The copy I'm reading is When You Are Engulfed in Flames, and he's just a master. He glides, glides through these essays with such grace and ease. I know everyone doesn't love nonfiction, and that is, I mean, that's so fine, but I would still recommend him because each essay does feel like a fun little world, like a short story kind of thing, so that's what I'm reading this week, and I recommend everyone go check him out. Now, before I close out the show, if you've listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really appreciate it. Also, feel free to head along to the website and support the pod. And of course, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. So I think it's time to end this episode. And today, to take us away, I think the first stanza of Derek Walcott's poem, The Sea is History, which was on display at the Memorial for Slavery in Nantes, France. And it goes, Where are your monuments, your battles, martyrs? Where is your tribal memory? 
Sirs in that grey vault, the sea, the sea has locked them up, the sea is history.